Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and we got acronym soup for you today, SSE versus SASE versus SD-WAN. Our guest is Tom Hollingsworth, who's been a frequent guest on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. I think he's even been on Day 2 Cloud before, although Tom and I try to figure that out in a minute. And uh, and we're going to go through these acronyms, which are have a lot to do with remote connectivity and the security space, all of which are cloud services and can affect what you're consuming in the cloud and how you get to these services to do the security inspections. And it's a rapidly evolving space. Would you agree with that, Ned? I certainly would. And we deal with the fact that not everybody is at the same part of their journey into implementing, you know, networking and security at the edge. So Tom helps us sort of dig into what the different components are and how they all fit together. Enjoy this conversation with Tom Hollingsworth, analyst at Gestalt IT. Tom Hollingsworth, welcome to Day Two Cloud. Welcome back. I think you've been on the show before. Is that is that right, Tom? You've been on Day Two Cloud before. I think I have, but let's be honest, Ethan. I do so many podcasts with you that that <laughs> I I don't even remember anymore. But I am always thrilled to be a part of anything that you guys are doing. I'm a huge fan. I listen to Day Two Cloud and all the other Packet Pushers Networks podcasts uh, on walks. Um, I I rant at you guys, even though you can't hear me. Uh, So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do it in person for once. Well, Tom, whether or not you've been on, welcome. Welcome back. And for those people that maybe don't know Tom Hollingsworth, give us a quick intro. Well, the short version is, is that I am an event lead for Tech Field Day, as well as being an analyst at Gestalt IT. Uh, That's kind of the same company. Uh, I talk to networking companies and security companies, a lot of other people in the enterprise IT space during the day. And at night, I create content, write blog posts, doing the occasional video or podcast and uh, publish that uh, on my website at networkingnerd.net. But uh, I spent a lot of time in my former life as a network engineer for Avar. And about a decade ago, I, I got involved with this really cool thing called Tech Field Day, uh, where uh, I learn a lot, but I don't implement a lot anymore. <laughs> Yeah. No, you mentioned Tech Field Day. Ned and I are both Tech Field Day delegates. We've been to lots of events over the years. And uh, one of the things we we hear from you is that you need new Tech Field Day delegates from time to time. If someone's listening to the show and they are interested in being a Tech Field Day delegate, would you tell them about that? Absolutely. If you are someone who loves to talk about technology and uh, learn a lot of cool stuff on the cutting edge, just go to techfieldday.com. And in the menu bar, there's a drop down that says delegates. And one of the entry items is become a Tech Field Day delegate. All you got to do is fill out a form. Uh, we just need to know, you know, who you are, what your LinkedIn page is, what your social handles are. And then uh, that sends me an email. I will go check it out. And you uh, might get an email back from me saying, you know, hey, let's sit down and chat. Um, maybe you might be interested in coming to an event. And it's not just networking. Um, you know, we're on day two cloud. So we cover cloud, uh, data, AI, uh, basically anything that's not an iPhone. Um, we, we cover all of the enterprise stuff. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. I recommend you do that. And if you think, oh, I, they, they'd never want me as a delegate, just go fill out the form and just uh, and just give it a shot. Yeah, you, you, you underestimate yourself. Don't do the imposter syndrome thing. Tech Field Day is a great community to get involved with. If you're deep into tech listening to this podcast, there's a good shot. You might make an excellent Tech Field Day delegate. Go do it. Our topic today, Tom, is uh, SSE versus SASE versus SD-WAN. We wanted to break down these acronyms because in your job as an analyst and my job as an analyst, we see lots and lots of vendors that are talking to us about these Gartner coin terms. I mean, I guess they're legitimate terms and they, they do mean something, which is why we wanted to get into that today. And, and talk all about that. And then, Ned, when I pitched this topic to you, you're like, oh, good. I don't know a whole lot about those particular topics. This would be a fun conversation. 
Yeah, so I'm going to be the outsider picking both of your brains on some of the terms and trying to bring some sanity to the the alphabet soup that's out there. Very good. Um, Tom, I think maybe we should talk about SD-WAN first, because if there's a, a way we can kind of trace the technology tree, I think the roots of it would be SD-WAN. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. That's kind of where everything jumped in. And, and you think SD, software defined. I mean, I remember Ethan and I sitting in some of the very first field day presentations where people were talking about, well, we're going to do networking, but we're not going to rely on hardware. And we're like, how? Like, that's kind of like a thing. But really what it involved was kind of standardizing the the way that we're handing off WAN connections. Because I, you know, depending on how far back your audience goes, they rem may remember things like, you know, T1s and serial connections. And boy, at my old job, I can tell you that we we muddled up a lot of those back in the past. But as we've kind of moved into a more, I don't know, modern age, if you want to call it that, everything kind of became an Ethernet handoff. And as soon as it was an Ethernet handoff, the hardware didn't matter as much. So a lot of people started trying to differentiate in software. And that's where we got that first generation of software defined vendors, if you will. They were all kind of building towards the same idea of, of extending the capabilities of the device using kind of, you know, these ideas that we've been, you know, percolating for a while. And then we they just broke wide now that we don't have to worry about, okay, what does the timing on that line look like? <laughs> Yeah, so software-defined WAN took us to this place where we could have a device that sat out on the edge, connect, let's say, a couple of broadband common internet links, and uh, rather than manually standing up VPN tunnels across the internet between different sites, SD-WAN would just build tunnels for us, and, and we could treat it like a routed link. Um, and and But then it got fancy, Tom, where... Uh, there'd be these custom measurements that could be taken across the line and go, oh, you want to put voice over the link? Well, we'll figure out which SD-WAN tunnel to put the voice traffic across by doing performance measurements across each tunnel and decide which one's best for voice traffic. And so it went from routing to fancy routing per application routing. Yeah, it absolutely did. And, and if you're thinking to yourself in 2023, well, yeah, that's just kind of like table stakes. It wasn't always table stakes. Anyone who's ever gone back in the day and read like one of the original QoS guides from Cisco Press, Tim Zagetti wrote probably, if you want to call it that, the Bible for QoS configuration on Cisco devices. And it was just like a pain, like you had to manually tune everything. And, and if you started introducing things like policy-based routing, to say, okay, if a traffic class has this certain characteristic, I want to send it over this link versus that one. Like that was really, really particular stuff. And this kind of automated that, for lack of a better term, kind of like Ethan, the way you described it. We're going to look at the traffic quality. We're going to inspect it to see, is this a voice packet? Is this a FTP packet? What have you? And I'm going to either send them over different links or I'm going to give them different traffic class uh, prioritizations and because in the mind of the companies that were building this all of the devices that connect my WAN are all my devices I can treat those packets with the same kind of quality so it's no longer I'm going to mark these things with the DSCP value and launch them into my provider and hope that they don't get destroyed along the way because my provider's like oh we're not we're not taking your DSCP values brother we're marking all of those down at the edge you know, it's funny coming as an outsider to the networking space. I had a, a decent understanding of how data center networking worked, how some campus networking worked. But when I first encountered WAN technologies, I had a very simple understanding 
you know, you just connect in the internet and then magic happens. And so one of my first consulting engagements, I was setting up a similar, this is like pre-SD-WAN, but it was SD-WAN-ish in the sense that it could take two completely different internet links and then use both of them or use one as a backup. And to me, I was like, well, obviously you could do that. Why would that even be a question? And obviously I could prioritize traffic on it because why wouldn't I be able to do that? So these are things that coming from the outside, how is this functionality not baked in from the very beginning? And it's only when you get into the technical fiddly bits that you guys are talking about, they're like, oh, there's a lot of challenges underneath to make this magic happen that to me as an outsider, seems like it should be table stakes. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, routing fundamentally is about pick a best path. There's one way to get from point A to point B, and there's an algorithm that computes depending on which routing protocol you're using, what that best path is. And so more typically, you'd end up with a point A to point B via this route that happens to be the best. That other available link, that's failover. That's if the primary best link goes down, you use the other one. So being able to use two at the same time and not waste that bandwidth, have it just sitting there idle, that was novel. That was like, wow, what's happening? <laughs> then to be able to write policies that determine, oh, this application can be reserved for this line, or you can do real-time tests constantly and then shift the traffic from one to the other, depending on what the performance characteristics are in real time, that was like, wow, you know, mind-blowing stuff that SD-WAN brought in, as you put it made table stakes and seems obvious and was just not for decades right but and, now we're in in this year of our lord 2023 and that is kind of table stakes now so th does that bring us tom to the next set of acronyms the the, the sse and and the secure edge and all that jazz it does. Yeah. The, w once we figured out that software could kind of do a lot more than just policy based routing on steroids, um, Gartner, Neil McDonald <laughs> got on there and said, well, what if we were able to offer even more, you know, kind of software components on top of that? And so SD-WAN as a product line kind of morphed into something called Secure Access Service Edge. And because no acronym in IT can be spelled out, it must be pronounced. Someone said <laughs> that looks like sassy. And that's how it was was coined after that. And the idea was they built a, a product suite on top of that. And it requires some certain kinds of things. Um, you needed a cloud access security broker, which allowed you to kind of define where your traffic was headed and what it could access in the cloud. Because around the time that SASE started becoming big was the time that a lot of cloud providers started kind of, you know, asserting themselves. And people were like, well, why am I keeping these things in the data center? Secure web gateway. So the idea of filtering traffic uh, coming from a, a background in IT where I worked with a lot of education providers, I can still remember having to connect the Internet uh, WAN link to a hub so that a, uh, a, a border you know, content filter could kind of say, oh, you can't go to playboy.com. Um, and now with secure web gateway, I can do that from a client. I can say, OK, guess what? You can't go there. And it's great from a, you know, from a remote office perspective, because I can just say if, if you don't have a limited, if you have a limited amount of bandwidth there, I can say I, I'm not going to let you browse Facebook during work. And because it's integrated into the laptop, it just won't let you go there. And, mm. and those are the kinds of things that they built on. And it provided this secure layer. But not all companies that did that were best of breed in that kind of space. I mean, when you think of a company, I'll just throw one out there like, say, Cisco. In 2015, did you consider Cisco to be one of the premier security application companies out there? Probably shaking your head no, mm, no. because Cisco makes hardware. 
Cisco makes software that runs on that hardware to make it function. They don't write application security suites. They do now because they've evolved as a company. But that was something that that you would typically create like a platform, if you will, and then you would farm out some of those bits and pieces to other companies like Zscaler or Bitglass or Forcepoint. And that's kind of where it evolved into that next space, because what does Zscaler make? They make software. You know what they mm -hmm. don't make? Hardware. Right. So they said, we want to play in our space where we're really good at what we do, but we don't make things. And so someone, I guess, was sitting around a table somewhere and said, well, what if we just take the A out of SASE, the access part, and we just call it Secure Services Edge, SSE? which I've been trying to convince people that it needs to be pronounced sissy and nobody is picking up on that. But yeah, so SSE is effectively a group of companies that are providing the software suites that would run on top of a SaaS or SD-WAN infrastructure without providing the access layer pieces. And, and that's appealing to a lot of companies, especially if they have spent a lot of money deploying a solution that they don't want to rip and replace because somebody comes along and goes, oh, well, we provide you an all-in-one thing that you really should be using, and, and we're not compatible with anybody else's stuff. Hmm. Yeah, if I go back in time a, a decent amount to when I first started having to set up internet filtering for a place I was working at, and I was using a Microsoft technology to do that, that all the traffic would flow through there from the client proxies. Uh, but we'd run into constant issues with the fact that once our sales guys went out on the road, they were no longer beholden to that proxy. And they'd come back with laptops that were riddled with all kinds of fun stuff because they were visiting not safe for work sites, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so the solution was to implement a VPN that would force them to tunnel back to our central office and then go through the internet filtering. But that wasn't scalable either. And I think that's, would you say that that was one of the issues with SD-WAN is it assumed that all of your traffic was originating at a branch office. Yeah, it did. And when you when you think about SD-WAN, it kind of built out of that WAN robo remote office branch office kind of mentality. Even some of the you know early attempts to create an SD-WAN analog in companies assumed that. I mean, there was a company, Aruba Networks, now part of HPE, that literally called their solution SD branch. We're mm -hmm. going to provide policy enforcement in an office environment. And that worked really well until March of 2020. <laughs> until it didn't. Yeah. Well, the, the, Ned, you brought up VPN, which, which is pretty uh, interesting. It, depending on what model of the VPN model of remote access for users has changed, too, because of all of this. So uh, if we take a step back and uh, and talk about SD-WAN and then the evolution to SASE a bit, you've got some companies that were offering uh, not just an edge router that connects you and then it tunnels across the internet or whatever to uh, other endpoints, but would offer you the middle mile where you connect to their network and they do magic inside their network and then get you as quickly as you can, uh, quickly as they can off to whatever your destination is. So mm -hmm. uh, one company that comes to mind here is uh, Ariaka. That's been mm -hmm. one of their specialties over they have a global network that's their own and their whole business model is they're going to stick a box in your uh, on-premises facility that is going to get you to their cloud as quickly as possible. And they have enough uh, pops around the world that I think they claim something like, you know, 10 millisecond or less latency between you and the edge of their cloud. 
as your traffic is moving through the Ariaka cloud, they can layer on a whole bunch of different services like mm-hmm. uh, security inspections and so on. And uh, then they optimally route that traffic through their cloud and uh, and hand you off to Azure or AWS or wherever it is you're going, the SaaS service or somewhere on the internet, whatever it might be. I love that business model. Well, you take that model, um, Tom, just to, just to close the loop on the VPN uh, portion of it. I don't remember if Ariake actually offers this as a service or not, but there are certain others that follow that model I was uh, describing and VPN to the cloud and then get that same sort of security and policy management and enforcement around your traffic stream. So it's not just an edge office. It could also be VPN. You VPN to some uh, cloud network that then has policy applied and then you know go off wherever you're... Uh, need to go and so you do have scale you can scale at that point well you assume that the uh the provider is gonna give you all that scale you don't have to worry about the scale in your firewalls or vpn concentrators at that point because you've offloaded that to them uh so this whole world of sassy and sd-wan has changed um given us new options for how we do vpn too and i love ariaka's business model because they effectively looked at this whole production and they said we've simplified the edge what else can we simplify? And if anybody in that's listening to this podcast has ever had to negotiate with a provider to provide circuits and you are specific about what you want, like I want to make sure there's circuit diversity going into this building. And they're like, oh yeah, we'll run two lines in. I'm like, yeah, but do they end up in the same handhold outside? <laughs> and then there's a lot of like side glances at each other. Like Ariaka deals with that for you. Like if you want a second circuit and you're going to pay for it, they'll make sure that there's a second circuit that comes in. They manage that all for you. But more importantly, like you mentioned, Ethan, because it's a private, and I use the quotey fingers there, private network um, in Ariaka, with everything riding over a VPN tunnel, not like a remote access VPN tunnel, but like, you know, a, a site-to-site VPN tunnel, they can control the traffic profile. So that's why they can say it's 10 millisecond latency to this endpoint, or, you know, we can make sure that your voice traffic isn't overridden because it's not being muddled with in the provider infrastructure. And that's valuable when you're trying to replace MPLS. Because effectively, MPLS is a VPN service from a telco provider that is providing the same traffic characteristics. And it's, well, our friend Greg Farrow loves to rant against MPLS on a regular basis because it's overpriced, it underdelivers, and it's kind of a cash cow that has uh, yeah. floated a lot of telcos for a lot of years. And it's being kind of blown apart by this model now of providing the same performance characteristics for a lot less price. Well, e- even better performance characteristics in, in a lot of cases. Uh, what's been interesting is as packet pushers, we get to see, uh, get feedback from a lot of people that are practitioners consuming these services. And one of the things we've heard historically about that since you brought it up, Tom, is if you're using MPLS, you would think this is top tier service. This is the best I could possibly get. Gold standard. And then they began experimenting with SD-WAN, just using plain old broadband circuits, nothing fancy, and found that the performance they could get on plain old broadband circuits was, in many cases, better, better, uh, you know, improved lower latency, uh, better jitter characteristics, less traffic drops than what their gold tier service provider was giving them with dedicated MPLS circuits. Um, and that's not always the case, but that story has happened quite a lot where you all you realize as the consumer of the MPLS services, what the heck am I paying for? Uh, you know, plus having to deal with the service provider. Boo. Okay, so we take all of that and these these changes have driven how we build uh, WAN, how we build remote access in a different way, 
how we do VPN becomes potentially different. We now have these different connectivity uh, options and opportunities. So, Tom, you were talking about with uh, SSE earlier that you know we get uh, or SASE, both of them actually include the same things. But um, but like CASB is one of the things. Uh, Secure Web Gateway is a thing. Uh, Zero Trust Network Access is a thing. Uh, now, I don't think you mentioned that acronym before, but that is one of the services that now we could deploy, which uh, which gets interesting. And it's one of the acronyms that's like, if you're buying this from us, yes, you're getting Zero Trust Network Access. I don't know. What, what is your take on ZTNA so far, Tom? Is it you know, a real thing and meaningful and we should be excited about it or 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 more Gardner buzzword pingo? I feel like ZTNA at this point is kind of aspirational. Like we 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 know where we want to go with it. We we have this this kind of utopian idea of I'm gonna sit down at my laptop today and I'm going to log into a cloud service, whether it's you know my uh, Salesforce app or whatever. But I'm gonna be able to make sure that I'm securely accessing that, whether I'm sitting in a corporate office, I'm sitting in my house, I'm sitting in a coffee shop. And I can make sure that only I can see that and that I am authorized to see it. I mean, if you think about the history of all the things that we've built to do this, you know, like VPN clients were kind of like, you know, the first way to do it. It's like, all right, I'm going to sit down somewhere and I'm going to fire up my VPN and I'm going to be able to connect to this location and I can do things like I'm in the office. And then it just kind of morphed from there. It's like, well, how do I know that that's actually a trusted device? And how do I know that the person on the other end of that is a trusted person? And it just kind of built this idea of, well, it always goes back to principle of least privilege, right? I'm going to authorize my users to see what they need to see and know more. And I'm going to make sure that they're capable of doing it in a safe and secure manner. And that can work in an environment that you control. It can work outside of that environment. But the important thing is that you are able to um, control it and audit it. Like you can pull up and say, okay, I saw that Ethan accessed this resource from this location for this long and did these things. Is that a good thing that I'm supposed to have? Or did Ethan's username log in from a VPN client from another country at a time that Ethan would have normally been asleep? I mean, you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I have a solution that will do that. But do you have a solution that will automatically say no, because this is outside of Ethan's profile? or his, you know, traditional use policy or pattern, and then send an alert to do that. And I think that's where we're trying to get with with ZTNA is it's that idea that no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing, I'm authorized to do a certain set of things. And if I need to change that authorization for one reason or another, you know, it's not it's not a huge deal to say, I need to remove your access to the, you know, the HR app and add your access to the you know scheduling app or something like that. And I can do that on a regular basis. So like I can continually reauthorize your capability to see these um, you know, resources as opposed to kind of like when we went back to what Ned was saying about, you know, well, I don't understand why you can't send traffic out of those two links. That feels like something you should be able to do. We've always had this mentality in IT of I'm going to solve this problem and then it's solved. So the routing pol- the routing table says the routes go out this interface toward that location. And until something changes, I'm going to keep doing that. And even DNS, how do we fix DNS? Well, we give it a timeout value. DNS queries are only good for like, you know what, used to be a day and now it's down to like, you know, a couple of hours. How many times have we ever made a change in DNS and said the words, okay, now I have to wait for this to propagate until the TTLs and the all that other stuff expires. CTNA doesn't do that. It's constantly re-asking the system, hey, is Ned still authorized to access this spreadsheet? And as soon as it says no, 
bang, it shuts the door and says, sorry, dude, you can't do this anymore. But you said it was aspirational, Tom. I'm just curious because I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk talk about a, a couple of examples where I it seems like it's real, but in your mind, it's, it feels like it's aspirational. So why do you say that? Well, we've we've built components of it, but just like Sassy, just like even SD-WAN back in the day, our aspirations are of this unified model that does everything for everyone. And I don't think we're there yet. We're getting close. We, I mean, we we have a lot of things that kind of work together, but we don't have everything that everybody wants. You know, the, I guess the the idea is, is that as soon as you log into your laptop and you've authorized yourself as who you are, like, you know, the world is your oyster and you can go do the things you want to do. But I still think that we're missing some of the pieces to, that smooth that transition because it's not for us. Like, like the nerds know how to make this stuff work, right? Like we've, we've had to log in with three, three different accounts forever. Like how many times have we told people don't run as root? Don't give yourself admin privileges. Um, but I can't explain that to the CEO of the company. Like the, you know, the, the executive board wants to be able to access their stuff and boy, you know, when it doesn't work because you get that email, it's like, I can't get to this spreadsheet. You know, somebody moved this and all of a sudden it's gone and I don't know what happened to it except, oh, well, somebody changed the permissions overnight and now all of a sudden it's gone. Like ZTNA wants to get to the point where it fixes that, but I don't think it's there yet. So I, I it's ZTNA is the journey. Like right. we're getting there. But yes, we've come a long way. Like if you'd have told me five years ago, ZTNA this, I would have laughed at you and been like, yeah, that's vaporware. Like we're never going to get there. But a lot of people have built on it because things like SD-WAN and SASE provide a level um, foundation to build on. Like I'm no longer worried about, you know, okay, well this works great until I'm running over a, a frame relay link that doesn't allow me to send, you know, more than like a megabyte per second of traffic. It seems to me that depending on where you are in the stack, that's where you build the solution to solve a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're living in the networking stack, you're like, I can solve this with networking magic. Mm -hmm. If you're in the application stack, higher up layer seven kind of stuff, you're thinking I can solve this inside my application. But it seems for like SASE and ZTNA to truly work as intended, it needs to function across the entire stack. So yeah, it, it for does. instance, yeah. when when you have 20 or 30 different SaaS services or SaaS platforms that you're utilizing as a company, and you want ZTNA to work across all of those different platforms, there needs to be an integration point with each of those platforms that links back to like a single sign-on service or something that is the source of truth for who belongs to what groups, how often should it be evaluated, and when do you flag up that things that shouldn't be happening are happening? So I think you're right. There's there's a bunch of moving pieces that all need to be integrated, and we need standards across all those different pieces. So if I'm using Okta and you're using Azure AD, oh, I'm sorry, Entra ID, <laughs> <laughs> and somebody else is using some other you know, single sign-on service, all of them are respecting the same standard for making those checks against the, the networking portion of things. And they are. And that's one of the things that, that we've we've worked really hard to do that. So just like if you're someone who who builds things like, you know, you need to check for friction points, right? Like I need to figure out where people are having problems. Rewind back far enough and you can imagine it's like, OK, I need to have a username and a password for the VPN client. But as soon as I log in, I have to put a different username and a password or the same username and password into the application because it didn't pass through. 
And then we solved that problem with the octas and the auth zeros and the whatever we're calling AD because I'm I'm an MCSE from 2000. It's Active Directory. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but, but as we solve those problems and we create those integrations, it opens the world up a little bit more. So like maybe part of my goal in deploying a SASE solution to help my ZTNA journey is to say, I'm going to use this identity provider, which will automatically sign me in to Microsoft 365 or, you know, these other platforms and provide that security because you're absolutely right, Ned. I, and this is one of those things, like I, I have my little molehill over here that I'm going to die on, but <laughs> for so long, application developers relied on the enterprise infrastructure teams to solve their stupid design decisions. And I can sum it all up in one word, vMotion. vMotion exists because <laughs> application developers are incapable of writing software that deals with what happens when a connection or a server randomly disappears. And you know how we solved that problem? We took it away because I challenge any developer today writing software for the cloud to say, okay, I need to know what happens if a server has to migrate from one availability zone to the other. And the developers are going to look at you like you're insane. And they're going to go, well, no, we wrote an error handling system that will say that if this resource disappears, we just move to the next one. And all of the networking people are just like the, the home alone kid, like they're slapping their cheeks and screaming, going, <laughs> why didn't you do this 20 years ago? Uh, right. It's too hard yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. It's just <laughs> well, too hard. Yeah, the containers rolled out and, and the idea of a stateless application became a real thing. And we found ways to put those containers or VMs behind something that could gracefully handle one of those nodes failing. So eventually, yeah, we did have to push it back up the stack and make it the responsibility of the application developers. But, you know, to solve the immediate need of, hey, that server can't go down, but sometimes hardware needs maintenance. We were like, no, nah, we'll just gently move it over to this other endpoint and you'll never know. <laughs> Tom, I want to go back again one more time to the aspirational nature of ZTNA Zero Trust Network Access, which would be, I think, an update or an evolution of VPN. It would be fair to, to say yeah. that. So if it doesn't do everything everybody wants at this point, fair enough. Uh, but there are networking vendors that are definitely offering that as a service that is part of their larger SSE or perhaps SASE offering, depending on what the vendor is and what acronyms they're choosing to use to describe their product. So Recently, Cisco came on. Uh, Ned, Ned, you were on that interview, right? We talked to uh, the sure Cisco was. team about yeah. uh, Cisco Secure Access, and they talked about their SSE uh, and then unification around uh, a client that was the roughly the enforcement point, as I understood it, for for most of this. Yes, there was inspections going on in a Cisco provided cloud of security services that you were consuming, but that client would be connecting to that cloud to have all the inspections done. And then uh, tunneling would be done from that cloud back to whatever the applications were that uh, you were trying to access, assuming you were like, you know, hosting them on premises, you know, or that kind of thing. And they were leaning hard into ZTNA as a component of that solution. Yes, we are doing posture assessment for every transaction. It's not a, you've authenticated, good, we'll see you next time you need to authenticate. Um, it was every transaction is getting checked for, for endpoint posture assessment and so on. 
And Palo Alto Networks is doing the same thing. Um, they also have a, an offering in this space where they're doing those sorts of inspections and would say, we are following the ZTNA model, zero trust. Yes, we can be part of your overall zero trust architecture with what uh, ZTNA is doing. And not being a consumer of either product, I can't say from practitioner hands-on experience how wonderful or not these services are, but from the way they're describing them, and we got into some detail with how it works and what it does, feels like they're going there for, for reals. Um, again, going back to your point, Tom, maybe it doesn't do everything everybody wants, but we're making headway as an industry for sure. We absolutely are. And, and yeah, don't get me wrong. Like my, this is my kind of purest view of things. It's still better than what we've had by, yeah. by a, a country mile. It's better than anything. And part of the reason why is because by implementing their solution, well, I'll, I'll use Cisco because I was uh, it, during Cisco live Amsterdam this year was when they kind of first talked about this. It's all built on the umbrella security suite. We know that Cisco has been pouring a lot of money into developing Umbrella and, and building around it so that it can provide as many of the services as you need. Now, obviously, there's value in this for Cisco because it's not just a hardware transaction anymore. I'm not just selling you a router that runs Viptela code. Now I have a, a recurring revenue stream, which every investor in the world now wants a recurring revenue stream. But importantly, it allows me to add new functionality to that stream to continue to get you to pay for it. Remember when we used to buy Microsoft Office every three years and we used to get all these spiffy new features? And now, do you remember the last time a new feature got rolled out in Office that you were super excited about or did it just randomly pop up one day? There's a huge article just a couple of weeks ago where Microsoft was talking about changing the default font in all of their Office applications for the first time since, you know, Calibri was de debuted and everyone's like, meh, okay. You know, it used to be like, that was like, you know, weeks of message board like flame wars and now we've just kind of gotten to this point where we expect new features to show up not on launch day not on you know at patch tuesday they just kind of pop in and i think that 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 value that these providers are offering in that manner helps keep us more secure um you know you, you log into the console one day and there's like a little button that's flashing it says new features and you click over there like <laughs> okay now i can uh you know, I, I can secure this transaction between, um, you know, this location and that location, or I can, uh, you know, if there's a failover, then it will automatically reroute this way or something like that. And you're kind of like, oh, cool. Click here to enable. All right. Then we've done a lot. And, and that click here to enable used to be weeks of engineering time. And it, it helps the companies provide value for the recurring revenue service that they're offering. And, and that really helps them. So, so, Tom, with your analyst hat on then, is SD-WAN still a meaningful product category or has it been supplanted by SASE at this point? Honestly, I don't think that SD-WAN in and of itself is going to provide much value. The companies that have a, a built-out WAN infrastructure are not going to be retiring at any time soon to make an incremental leap. What they want to do is they want to provide services on top of everything else as they go along. So it's it, to me, it's like um, when you go to get a new car, are you going to get a new car model that's like a few years newer than yours with mostly the same features? Or are you going to say, well, if I'm going to have to get a new car, I'm going to get a lot of extra stuff that I've really wanted for all for a long time. You're probably going to be more willing to make that leap. So would I go out today and say, well, I just need a, a bare bones SD-WAN provider 
and I'm going to worry about running stuff on top of it? Probably not. I'm going to say, if I have the capability to say, pay, I don't know, $5 per user per month to gain these security services to authenticate my users so that I can say, hey, you don't have to come into the office anymore to get access to this server. Um, you can totally use that from wherever you happen to be working. I'm going to try to provide that value because it, it makes my users happier. It makes me more secure. And it is uh, something that I couldn't get before. Yeah, SD-WAN feels like it's the foundation we had to provide. A lot of companies made, um, a lot of startups in the space. There was a lot of consolidation. A lot of money was made. A lot of money exchanged hands around the SD-WAN technology that was created. And now SASE is where it's at. But there is a counterpoint here, which is there's a significant part of the practitioner market that's still getting educated on what the heck SD-WAN is. So they're that far back. I mean, I attended an event not even a year ago where one of the present it was a more of a regional, you know, small event, and one of the questions or presentations that was done was what is SD WAN? Just talking about the basic premise of of the SD WAN value proposition, how it's different from traditional uh, service provider MPLS style remote connectivity, and so on. So there's a gap between where the technology is and how rapidly it's being it's evolving. I, so so before uh, Silver Peak was acquired, who bought Silver Peak? That was HP. HPE bought Silver HP Peak. HP Aruba right? bought yeah. Silver Peak. So mm -hmm. before that acquisition happened, I remember a demo with Silver Peak showing Zscaler integration, basically SASE before SASE as a coin was even termed or maybe it was mm -hmm. just emerging. I mean, so that as a value proposition was included fairly early on in the SD-WAN space, but there's still the market that's out there going, what is this SD-WAN thing, let alone SASE. And of course, we're having a, a discussion here to try to differentiate between SASE, SD-WAN, and SSE as product offerings. So you've got a confused marketplace that doesn't know what it is that they're being sold or what it does for them and are still trying to get caught up with what a modern WAN architecture looks like. I, I will say the hilarious thing that you just said, Ethan, is going all the way back to Ned's comment about you know, I don't understand why it can't do both of those things at once. And I said, <laughs> in networking, the hardware has always solved a problem and done it that way until something changes. Network engineers are the same way. It's I'm going to use this routing protocol to solve that problem until I can't anymore. And then I'm forced to make that change. You know, I, I went shopping for a pair of shorts yesterday and I was so frustrated because they didn't have the color I wanted with the feature that I needed at the place that I normally buy them. And I had you know, an existential crisis because I had to go find a different <laughs> pair of shorts. And it's not like there weren't a whole lot of them out there, but it was just like, I solved this problem. And network engineers are like that. You know, I, I'm gonna go buy that thing from Cisco. You know, let, let's be fair, we can all joke about this. The Cattle 6500 is the most successful networking product in the history of the world because Cisco kept selling them and people kept buying them and people kept buying them until they couldn't buy them anymore. And then they're like, well, crap, now I have to find something new. And I hate that. So there now that but you if you've been doing this for five, six, seven years at the pace that technology changes, the amount of technology advancement that's happened in that four, five, six, seven year window is enough that you have to really do the research. And that's one of the things that that makes it hard is if you're if you don't dig into it, you're going to be lost really fast, because if you're still thinking from a you know, even just an early day SD-WAN type thing where, okay, well, I can do a little bit of software control on top of it and maybe some traffic steering. The world now is much more focused on, you know, the, the posture assessments and the, you know, being able to connect your clients remotely 
through, you know, like the Cisco, uh, the client that you mentioned, as opposed to, oh, well, I have to drive into the office to do this now because all of the intelligence that I need to do lives on an edge device. And, and that's a radical shift for people because in my mind as a network engineer, I have 10 sites that I have to manage. Okay, well, that's like, I can, I can visualize 10 sites in my head. If I have a thousand houses that I have to manage now, like that's just like mind blowing and I don't like that. So I have to figure out, well, how do you manage that? And, you know, one of the ways is, you know, you divide people into groups and you manage them based on policy, not on location. Well, you're speaking to yet another problem in this space, which is managing all of these security elements and trying to do it in a unified way. Uh, Ned, in our conversation with Cisco, they were talking about um, some of that challenge and how you present the data. Palo Alto Networks acknowledges that as well. When you've got these categories that include several different uh, enforcement products, a CASB, Secure Web Gateway, uh, Zero Trust Network Access, that are all doing slightly different things with slightly different specialties, and you're needing to manage all of that, you used to buy them as point products that best of breed or something like that, um, you'd <laughs> right. have to manage them all separately. No one wants that headache. You're trying to unify policy, which is another trend we're seeing here, I believe, with SSE and SASE is starting to unify the security policies into some kind of a, a cohesive policy management structure that makes it viable for you to actually write a policy and enforce it using whatever the backend enforcement is. You don't even want to have to know. You might have to know for a while, but we're slowly seeing integration of those products into one unified security approach. I think if we could take a page out of the playbook for the cloud providers who have been dealing with this sort of stratified levels of maturity when it comes to different organizations. Because if you think about it, Tom, you're right. Like network network engineers tend to be pretty risk averse because if they change something and it breaks, everybody's going to be screaming at them. So I know this particular, you know, firewall works. I'm just going to keep buying that firewall until I can't buy it anymore because I don't want to deal with the headache of everything breaking and me getting yelled at. And that totally makes sense. But the pl- the part where you get stuck at is when you buy that first device. So you have people that are 10 years in the past, 15 years in the past running that device. And then someone five years later bought a different thing and they're stuck at that point. And so the education needs to meet the people where they are today. And that's something cloud providers have had to deal with as well is how do I get you onto the cloud as it exists today from the starting point that you're at? Maybe you're still running all physical and you've got, you know, NT boxes in your environment. Maybe you've moved to VMware or maybe you're running a fully containerized solution. I need to have educational materials that cover that entire swath of potential customers that I'm trying to talk to. And, and you're right, because we we have people who have a very interesting concept of the way IT works. And I'm glad that you brought up this idea of migrating from bare metal operating systems to virtualization to containerized applications running in the cloud, because it's much the same journey that we were trying to do, especially in the security space. There are still a lot of people out there that will go in and manually modify ACLs in a firewall. Mm-hmm. And like that should just make your skin crawl because <laughs> there's so much stuff that can go wrong with that. And we've eventually kind of gotten to a point where we have a better idea of how to to do that configuration, but you still shouldn't be doing it device by device. You should be doing it based on a category of users or devices through a policy. And the important thing there is that when you do that, you can verify that the changes that are made are made across the board. I mean, go to any other discipline. Think about a company like or wireless. There was a long time ago that we would manage individual access points. And it was a headache because you had to set channels individually to make sure that they weren't 
like interfering with each other. When I was first studying wireless, like I can literally remember having to draw out a channel plan map and go, okay, this one can only be here and these two have to be that. And now there are controller systems that just manage that for you automatically because what you've said is, I wanna provide this particular quality of service for my users. And when we think about it through those lenses, when we stop thinking about, you know, how many times have we said pets versus cattle? Um, you know, we, you know we, we're reaching the point where, where the devices aren't even cattle anymore, they're insects. Like they, they, they just need to be there and we need to deal with them, but we don't care individually about them. We just want stuff to happen. And, you know, like when the CEO moves to a coffee shop, I don't want to have to think, okay, is this a Starbucks or is this a local coffee shop? What kind of VPN do they have? I just want to say when you're not in the office, this client fires automatically, does a posture assessment, secures the communications here, dumps everything off locally, and we're good. And, and, and But that's a radical shift for people who are like, no, 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 I have to log into the PICs and I have to create the Turbo ACL and then I have to commit everything, otherwise it's not going to work. And you're just like, okay, grandpa, sit down. We're, we're going to teach you how we do things now. Oh, and in this case, grandpa's probably only about 50 because it wasn't that long ago that we were doing those things. Oh. Well, maybe a good way to wrap this up is uh, is to see how Ned how Ned's thinking about these categories now, and and see how much rambling Tom and I did that was actually effective in defining the uh, SD WAN versus SASE versus SSE. What do you think, Ned? Do you think you uh, could differentiate the three? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the way that I'm mentally capturing it is SSE is sort of the the roll up of everything else. It's it's that I've moved everything under one big umbrella and I'm in theory going to have some sort of unified control plane that helps me manage all these different access and security components that I'm dealing with from a networking perspective. Uh, and then SASE kind of falls under that umbrella a little bit. ZTNA also falls under that umbrella. And in my mind, it's not just going to be a single vendor solution. It could be for perhaps, but I think we have to acknowledge that it's a very complicated thing that we're trying to solve for. And even if you buy a solution from a specific vendor, it still needs to integrate with a whole bunch of other vendors that you're working with in your space. So this can't be the networking team rolls up with their SSE and they're like, we're solving everything done. Like this needs to be a conversation across multiple groups and teams within your organization when you're even shopping for a unified solution. Yeah. So I, I, I tweak that and say uh, SASE is uh, is SSE, but with with access, with remote access stuff added to it. Um, okay. it but, uh, and, but then another thing you said, it, it needs to be able to work with a bunch of third party providers. Yeah, but the vendors don't want that. They want you to buy it all from them. <laughs> so the, what, what you'll hear from a lot of these guys and what Cisco's doing with their secure access stuff and what uh, Palo's doing with, I can't keep all their product names straight, so I won't try. I'll make a mistake and I'll get scolded. Um, and Fortinet is uh, doing the same kind of a thing. They want to be a one vendor fits all and buy it all from them because why would you want to have three or five or eight different security providers. Don't you want it all from us? Cause we can give you unified logging and it makes policy management easier and all that stuff. And so they are definitely trying to get all of the business uh, for this stuff. And they, and I believe they make a good argument when they say we are the one vendor that is providing all of these services and can therefore give you a truly unified view of how all of these different services are performing. So they'll, that that's a, that's a pitch we keep hearing and, 
And depending on how well they do with their single panes of glass, <laughs> they do better or worse, uh, just, just depending on uh, their execution. Uh, a fair argument to make. And then SD-WAN, as uh, Tom and I were saying earlier, as a product category, is probably going to fade because why would I buy just SD-WAN by itself now? Wouldn't I buy, you know, a SASE or wouldn't I take SD-WAN and the layer SSE on top of it, if nothing else? And if I'm doing that because of all the, the mix and mash of vendors that might get involved, don't I really want a SASE solution that's unified and gives me all the remote access I want with all of the different security features that I'm looking for and then uh, bakes in uh, the ZTNA components? as well because gosh of course i'm going to zero trust of course i am i gotta have that ztna part mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. anyway that's how i'm thinking about it tom anything to add no i think you pretty much nailed it uh, it's always going to come back to figuring out what you need do you do you need to have hardware at the edges can you run it with mm -hmm. only software i mean a lot of the packages are going to look very similar to each other and if you buy one they're naturally depending on what they're good at they're going to try to sell you the other and yes, you're absolutely right. The, the companies want you to to be, for lack of a better term, locked in with, with their solution. Now, they're not going to say that. They're going to say that we provide all this extra value. But for them, it's it's a matter of being able to kind of, um, you know, develop in tandem. Like we, we develop the hardware features to enable the software. The software tells us what the hardware needs to do. And, and it helps build towards a better future. But yeah, I think we're we're going to slowly start to move past the days of the best of breed solutions integrated with the hardware. And we're going to move to a future where the hardware providers, the Cisco's, the Palo Alto's, the Fortinet's of the world have their own software suite that they've been developing either through their own efforts or through acquisition. And we're going to have the SSE providers who are going to provide their own solution that is absent hardware. And they're going to want you to use that on your client devices. And that's kind of where we're going to be for a while without a major shakeup. Now, Tom, you are an analyst, tech field day person, uh, a content creator extraordinaire. And one of the things you do are Tom versations. And you've got one on SSE versus SASE, I think. I do, actually. I, I So my very first conversation I ever did was I said that SASE was effectively unified threat management 2.0. Uh, that was real popular, by the way. I had a lot of people who were willing to argue with me. But as I started hearing more and more about SASE and SSE, I was like, oh, well, what is this? So I did what a, any good uh, um, analyst does. I, I went and did research and I was like, OK, well, what are the differences? And I, as I sat down, I was kind of like, OK, I think I see where this is going. And so I recorded a conversations and and it's just an idea of, you know, where are we going? How do we build to get there? What are the pros and the cons? It's just, it's a, it's a fun little conversation kind of outlining some of the stuff that we've talked about here. Of course, you know, I recorded, I think like last year or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's things have evolved even a little bit since then, but that's the great thing about technology is as soon as I press record on something, it's probably out of date already, <laughs> but it's good there for historical purposes. So the conversation on SSE versus SASE is up on YouTube. You can search for that. It will link to it in the show notes, which you can find at packetpushers.net. And Tom, how else can people find you on the internet? Well, if you're a fan of social media still, uh, I am networking nerd pretty much everywhere on social media. Um, you can check out my website, networkingnerd.net is where I, I post some of my more curmudgeonly uh, things. Uh, but if you want to check out my Bruce Wayne job, uh, that's techfieldday.com and gestaltit.com. Uh, we have lots of great content out there, uh, podcast, video series, um, you know, blogging. A lot of the stuff that you see at packetpushers.net through all the stuff that you guys do is just a slightly different flavor. 
Okay. Tom, thank you for joining us on Day 2 Cloud today. And virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, Ned and I would love to hear them. There's a form you can fill out at day2cloud.io. Fill out that request form. Tell us what you want Ned and I to talk about, do some homework on, find a guest, and we'll do our best. Also, Packet Pushers has a weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Human Infrastructure Magazine is loaded with the very best stuff we found on the internet this week, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It's free. It doesn't suck. Get the next issue via packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.